Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Pete Kunze. My guest today is Yves Benamou, a teaching fellow in film studies at the Université Paul-Valéry Montpellier, France, and the author of Contemporary Disney Animation, Genre, Gender, and Hollywood. The book was published by Edinburgh University Press in 2023. Good morning, Eve. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm hanging in there. Thanks for joining us. Thank uh, you for having me. Oh, great. Well, it's wonderful to connect with you, uh, especially across continents. Um, and to begin, I'm hoping you could tell us a little bit more about your background and your training. Uh, yes, so um, I have a PhD in film and television from the University of Bristol. Uh, and that's the, the book is actually based on my doctoral thesis. Uh, it came out of that. Uh, and before that, I also had um, I also did a, an MA in history and film at the University of Warwick. And so there were the, the seeds of the project already a, a little bit there. Excellent. Uh, I always like to ask folks who are revising dissertations into books um, because a lot of our listeners are early career scholars. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of um, how this dissertation became a book? Um, yes, so there were the major cha- changes were twofold, I would say. First, the, the structure. So I had to um, revise a little bit and make it more explicit. So I have each chapter is more, f- more focused on one film or a couple of films, whereas in the doctoral thesis it was more uh, structured in relation to themes. Uh, so that makes it easier for readers to find exactly what they're looking for. Uh, and also in terms of the time period, looking a little bit, uh, expanding the time period, basically. So looking at films. Uh, uh, so I looked at films from in the book 2008-2018, so a decade, which was a bit more um, uh, refocused in the doctoral thesis, so more expanded for the book. Uh, and uh, also looking at the decade before that, so the 
to understand what is so specific about the de decade I'm looking at in the book, uh, I, I have a chapter dedicated to the, the 90s and 2000s uh, in Disney, which was not in my uh, doctoral thesis. And also maybe in terms of, of style, um, making it more accessible to readers that might be students as well. Um, so I think those might be the main things, I think, as far as I was concerned. Excellent. Um, so I have a general question for you, um, and yeah. it's a bit of a lo loaded question since um, I work on Disney as well. But I, mm -hmm. I'm wondering what brought you to to Disney Animation and, and why you decided to do kind of a deep dive into it for your doctoral study and now your first book. Um, so, well, it goes back uh, to my very first uh, undergrad dissertation, I would say. But I, I was, while I was studying, I was also, I was always interested in uh, themes around gender representation, um, American cinema, and also uh, politics. Um, and I was looking for a topic that would kind of interact nicely between these three areas. And, and Disney is fascinating in that regard because it has um, uh, it is so central in American culture in American studies and also it it it's talked about a lot in terms of gender representation and, and gender so I thought that's that was my my starting point and for uh, and then for my MA dissertation I was also interested in issues rela related to uh, the concepts of post-feminism in terms of uh, contemporary representations of women in uh, in media, especially in the 2000s, and then Frozen was released, and Frozen was really the, the catalyst for the the PhD and then the book because uh, it also um, made me think about uh, the idea of genre, uh, film genres, and looking a little bit beyond fairy tales. Um, Disney films uh, being studied as Disney films in isolation, but looking at all the other generic influences and uh, and especially looking at Disney now um, for, for for the doctoral thesis and then for the book, the, the, the starting point was, okay, now that we have Disney owning almost half of Hollywood, let's say, um, with first... Uh, the acquisition of Pixar and then Marvel and Lucasfilm and many other things. Um, what defines Disney animated films? Because if you ask people who are not academics, when what do you think about when you think about Disney? They will say animated films, and they will tell you about their favorite films from from where they were when they were kids. Um, and actually, that, that was my question was, well, now what is so specific about Disney animated films in that decade? And especially considering the, the competition from Pixar and DreamWorks and late Blue Sky. And at a time when Disney is no longer the only one doing animation within, a, obviously, a, an Anglophone uh, European context. So that, that brings me to my next question, and you've alluded to this already a bit, which is obviously Disney celebrated 100 years last mm -hmm. year, um, and you've selected for your study this 10-year period between 2008 and 2018. Can you tell us how you decided to delimit your study there? What do you see as kind of evocative about 
those years at Disney? Uh, yeah, so there were there are many reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, that was there were not that many things, uh, many uh, works at the time. Looking at that period specifically for Disney, usually for Disney studies, uh, the Disney Renaissance is looked at in the nineties. Or books also tend to have a, a, a global um, outlook on Disney from the thirties to to now. Uh, so that was at the time a decade that was not really looked at that, as much, and also when you look at uh, academic books on um, digital animation, computer animation, you tend to have Disney alongside many other um, studios. That that so that first it would be obviously in I'm really interested in Disney's interactions with other studios and other and other acquisitions and other things but the main focus for me is still Disney so that that's that's the first element the looking at that specific decade and also thinking of from 2008 um, so 2008 you have many things happening first you have a bolt which is released and obviously it's it's two years after a major change uh, in terms of uh, uh, Disney management, uh, when you have John Lasseter becoming chief creative uh, officer of, of Disney. That was in 2006. But Bolt in 2008 is really the first Disney animated film released and supervised uh, um, under this new uh, Pixar management and hierarchy uh, after all those changes and all those interactions between Disney and Pixar. Uh, and this is also the first that was released. Um, Helen Haswell writes about that, uh, the fact that it's released, um, it was received rather positively compared to others like Meet, uh, Meet the Robinsons and the, the ones that were in the, in the early 2000s. Then in 2008, you also have the first MCU film, Iron Man, uh, Marvel is bought one year uh, one year later, but also it marks the beginning of a, um, the superhero genre as being the most commercially successful, but also the the the, the main genre of uh, um, mainstream American cinema. So that that's another thing. Um, so, so that that's looking at that, and then 2018. Why end in 2018? Uh, in 2018, Ralph Breaks the Internet is released. And I thought it's a very interesting film because it's a film that really looks back. Uh, well, that was before the release of Wish, obviously. Ben, but uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet is the, the first sequel, Disney um, uh, theatrically released sequel since The Rescuers Down Under. Um, for D Disney to release a sequel is very un very rare and unusual compared to other studios like DreamWorks and, and Pixar. And Ralph Breaks the Internet explicitly acknowledges what Disney is now. You have those sequences in uh, what is called Oh My Disney when you where you have the, the characters of Ralph and Vanellope getting into the internet and into a website that's no longer exists anymore as it was in the film. Uh, I mean, as it was at the time of the release. So it's, it's, all, it's already obsolete. But it was a website that um, um, gathered all the latest news on Disney films, uh, Disney releases, Marvel, Pixar, with interviews and games. And the film has that. 
and you have all those characters from Disney, from Marvel. You have Vanellope uh, being um, in, um, interacting with uh, Eeyore from Dumbo, with, Star- with Stormtroopers. She sees a Stanley cameo, um, and she interacts with all those characters of all those areas and this, uh, of the Disney empire. And there's also that very famous sequence when she chats and hangs out with the Disney princesses. So I thought this is a fascinating film to end uh, the book on because it does seem to uh, reflect on what Disney is now and also with a heavy dose of parody and self-reflexivity, especially with the characters of the princesses, um, including a musical sequence as well. Um, So it seems, and also being very contemporary in its sense of uh, relying on... um, um, spectacular uh, digital animation, um, relying on action genres, um, um, and having this this evolution. I mean, I, I think this film is very interesting uh, because it really um, illuminates so many changes uh, that that Disney um, uh, faced in in that decade. Uh, and also in 2018, you have the new chief creative officer of Disney, who is Jennifer Lee, with John Lasseter being uh, replaced. Um, so that's uh, that's also a decade that um, that is specific in, in that regard as well. So um, and it also contains so many um, interesting films. So looking at uh, Tangled, Frozen, um, in that period, Zootopia, films that have been, that decade is interesting because it had been a while that um, Disney, it, it's the return of Disney in a way, after the late 90s and the, the early 2000s, having Disney being replaced a little bit by Pixar, I mean, being replaced by Pixar, the box office, and uh, big, uh, Pixar films getting all the animation Oscars, and that's period of late 2000s, early 2010s, really is the, the comeback of Disney, both for, for critics, but also in terms of box office with, a, again, Frozen, Tangle, Zootopia, um, films like Mo- Moana as well. Uh, so that's um, that's a very, so that's why I, I chose to focus on that decade specifically. Yeah, and, and you raised an interesting point there, and, and one that comes up in your book, and I think is is, is a fascinating intervention into Disney studies, which is because of corporate organization, there is a tendency for folks to either do Disney feature animation, to do Pixar, to do um, Lucasfilm, to do Marvel. And then, of course, during this period, as you mentioned, um, Lasseter and Catmull are put in charge of really all Disney animation, right? Um, So can you talk about the benefit of thinking about Disney animation in a more expansive and inclusive way? Um, and, and what that might do for how we've studied Disney so far. Uh, I think you've made a really interesting point here about Ralph Breaks the Internet and, and how that kind of represents not only synergy, but but synthesis among these kinds mm. of divisions. Um, I mean, taking into account the, this wider Disney universe in a way, uh, is it really illuminates the, the diversity, first, of influences, uh, at work within Disney animated films. Traditionally, Disney animated films have indeed tended to be studied in isolation. You you look at, uh, for example, Frozen uh, through the lens of 
all the previous Disney fairy tales. How does Frozen compare, compare to Snow White, to Little Mermaid, etc.? Um, same thing. Of, it does happen specifically for, for Disney fairy tales. They tend to really be studied in a... Um, in as Disney fairy tales, so so looking into interactions with a uh, with Pixar with Marvel, I specifically focused on Pixar and Marvel, but I'm sure there would be very interesting studies to make looking at Lucasfilm in the future or of uh, of acquisitions. Who knows what will uh, what what Disney will acquire next? But um, that 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 allows us to um, look at these films. Uh, and uh, discover new things that, uh, and also it helps us um, get a more complex picture uh, of these films as well. Um, um, if I if I take the example of, of um, the, the Disney fairy tales again, there was a, a the, the cycle of Disney fairy tales released. Uh, so the Princess and the Frog, Tangled, and Frozen. Uh, I've come across several articles looking at them saying, yes, they're more modern. There's something happening, especially with the relationship between the male character and the, and, and the princess. And actually, if you look at other influences, uh, especially the, the, Disney print, the, the, the Disney heroine, Frozen and Pixar's Brave, for example, have many, many things in common. There is a clear dialogue in, in, this, in, in between um, in these two films. Um, the way they were produced, uh, the role of female directors, the way they were received, there are interesting parallels. And to go back to the, the Disney couples, if you look at um, contemporary Hollywood uh, romantic comedies of that time, there are also many, um, many interactions. I also look in the book, um, I also look at uh, The Influence of Enchanted, who, uh, who's a, which is an interesting uh, hybrid example, which is a live action pretty much most of it is a live action film but the, the 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 animated sequences are key to understand it and so again a film like frozen for example is in dialogue yes with the whole history of disney fairy tales but also with disney produced live action films like uh, enchanted um pixar films like brave and also Marvel films, the superhero genre is a very strong influence on that film. So that that's allows us to have a, a, a more uh, complex uh, picture and also to understand how these films, um, specific, especially I think the, the, the ones from that decade, do, do not easily fit into a category uh, like um, like they are progressive or they are regressive. They actually draw on so many different influences that are much more complex than than they seem. And so the, the, there's two dynamics there that we want to pull out. Let's start first with um, with gender, right? So mm -hmm. your book um, contributes to what arguably is the most vital area and the most vibrant area within Disney studies, which is this question of um, Disney studies and gender studies, right? We've had books and collections from Amy Davis, Johnson Chu, Sharon Roberts, Robin Muir. I'm, I'm wondering, um, how do you see your work kind of in dialogue with the, the pretty substantial tradition of, of feminist and gender studies analyses of, of Disney? 
Um, yes, yeah, so obviously I draw on these uh, very uh, important works, especially a a Amy, Davis, Amy Davis's books, both on uh, uh, female characters and male characters uh, as well in Disney. Uh, so so I, I, I draw on them and also I try to um, expand the dialogue and looking at other film genres as well. Um, because, because, again, the, what is so interesting and what is specific about, I would say, Disney animated films and Disney animated, well, female characters, um, as opposed to maybe... Um, animated characters from other studios is that they have they always engage with that history of characters especially the princesses because they are because they they come with a history of animated films they come with a, a massive merchandising uh, empire you could almost say and uh, so it's always there when you have those films they're always in dialogue with the, with the with their past and the, the history of those of those representations, um, and um, a, a concept that that has uh, that, that I find that I think is interesting in terms of in, interesting in terms of looking at gender representation is the the concept of post-feminism, which I borrow from uh, authors who look at other actually other other um, types of whether mainstream films or media. So authors like even Tasker Diane Negra. Uh, Stephanie Gens, who who used that concept to to, de to describe specific contemporary sensibilities related to uh, representations of femininity, which fuse empowerment rhetoric with tradi traditionalist uh, identity paradigms. So that entanglement they they speak about that entanglement of um, feminist and anti-feminist ideas. Um, so I, I use that concept in terms of a spectrum, really, look, looking at how all those films from Disney can be put on a kind of post-feminist spectrum and how in one film you can have those moments who draw on those more traditionalist representations, draw on the past of the Disney fairy tales, uh, will reproduce more stereotypical, more conservative portrayals of women and um, um, coupledom, heteronormative relationships. And at the very same time, uh, that film will also have more moments or sequences that will uh, tend towards the, the, the other end of the spectrum. And this is where I argue in the book come, um, comes in the, the, the influence from other genres, from action films, from superhero films, uh, from other strands of, uh, of romantic comedies, so the, um, so this is uh, this is how I would I would do that. So I, I build on these very important works, but I try to make also a connection with uh, concepts that are not always used in Disney studies or not as often, and trying to uh, to think about how the, the same film again this this all. Um, or different characters in the same film uh, can draw on different um, di different influences. So, so I'm hoping we can maybe uh, take a moment from the kind of the big picture discussion we've been having and think about a case study. So, mm -hmm. I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna deal you Rapunzel, Tiana, or Elsa. But can you take one of those characters and and run with it and give us a little sense of of what you do with understanding genre 
gender and storytelling in, in their respective film? Oh, that's a that's a very tough uh, choice. Uh, okay. Pick, pick your um, favorite. <laughs> ah, um, so if you look at uh, Elsa, well, I'll, I'll talk about Frozen again. Frozen is on the cover of the book, so it's a very it's a very important film for that decade, uh, and it's a very important and it has been talked about a lot. So Elsa again, if you use the uh, the fairy tale the Disney fairy tale framework for that film. Uh, and looking at Elsa, while she does not fit in quite uh, easily, she she's not paired in a romantic in a heteronormative relationship. Um, she, um, so the Disney fairy tale doesn't quite work with her. The, the The relationship with a male partner is not is not relevant in her storyline. Her storyline focuses on. Her relationship with her sister Anna. So for her character, you, uh, it's important to draw on other genre and generic influences in order to understand how she functions within the film. So for her character, I look at two two main trains: the superhero genre and specific trends of the romantic comedies, uh, which focus on. Um, f uh, female uh, friendships, female relationships. Um, so the superhero genre, uh, th there's, th there are very interesting parallels between Elsa as a superhero who throughout the film, if you look at the, the narrative of becoming uh, of superheroes, she, she has those new powers that she has to try to understand and master the, the concept of mastery of powers of Potential danger and ruliness are central within the superhero genre. The, the the idea is how how the superhero can harness their powers uh, to uh, to effectively uh, perform their roles to uh, to uh, to uh, save people and um, and do, do what is right. Um, and uh, this is a trajectory that you, you have through the film and that expands with Let It Go, which is that amazing sequence where she, she finally um, experiments with her powers. And, um, and you, have many, you often have those sequences in superhero films where you have the superhero experimenting with, with his or her superpowers and uh, gaining confidence and, um, and mas in, the, in that mastery. In, in there, you have a superimposition when you have the superhero, but you also, also you have the, the musical. So that's the Disney element in here, the musical, very important. The superhero element and the self-reflexive element as well, because she, what does she do? She creates, she animates the snow. She animates a snowman. She, she, she's, she's like a, um, a, a digital animation creating an, a, a fantastic ice castle and a very, a very elaborate sparkling dress uh, before the eyes of the, of the viewers. So there's that element as well. Um, and also, uh, if we think about her relationship uh, with her sister, uh, that's, um, I make parallels in the book with um, a strand of also women's films, but you also have it, that in... Uh, romantic comedies from the 2000 and the 2010s where the, the, the focus uh, tends to be on the female heroine uh, and her relationship with her friends or with her family. You have that in Bridesmaids is an example. Um, 
that that is the the, the most uh, the most famous example. You have um, all romantic comedies that focus on multiple characters, and you will have one or more characters that will remain single or that who will prioritize friendships over finding romantic partners. So, how to be single is another example. Um, so that's how you, uh, we can understand a, a character as complex as Elsa, because if we stick to the Disney fairy tale framework, obviously she draws onto that and she's a highly subversive uh, character who, who, who is closer to Disney female villains as well. There, there have been interesting things uh, written on that uh, Catherine Lester's chapter comes to mind uh, on, on Frozen. Uh, but she draws on a different tradition, so that that's a very subversive characters in terms of the fairy tale, um, because she 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 departs from the Disney princess to become something else. But what is so interesting in Frozen is that you get two female characters. So you still get to have Anna, who will be the princess, the more cheerful, um, naive princess, who will get married, who will have. And her storyline is the sister, but also the two male partners in the first film. So you get to have everything with Frozen. So on the post-fanic spectrum, it's all over the place. Um, yeah, I hope this answers your question. But I cannot speak about Elsa without talking about Anna as well. No, I think it opens up a lot more questions as well, right? Because one of the things my students and I often talk about is in the Disney Renaissance, we get the heterosexual romance plot right mm -hmm. um and and of course thinking about rick altman and tom Schatz, right the the musical is always already at least in a hollywood context a romantic comedy right mm -hmm. it's always kind of premised on that um what altman calls the dual focus narrative right um but then you get to this period that you've you've focused on in your book and you know we get merida we get elsa we get um, Moana. Mm -hmm. And then after your period that you're focusing on, you know, you, you also get Mirabelle, right? But they're all uh, strong female leads who are not motivated by um, pursuing a heterosexual partner, right? They're, they're motivated largely by familial love and by self-determination and self-realization. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you see these changes in genre and these changes in gender during this period um, and, and how you understand Disney kind of um, moving away from the heterosexual romance plot as the structuring mechanism of generic storytelling during this time. Um, yeah. So I think um, there are, I would say maybe there are, Two things. First of all, if you think about um, the, so I'll start with the fairy tale ones. So, Prince and the Frog, um, Tangled, and Frozen. Um, those films have to, so they are musicals, they are fairy tales, and they have romance in them. Uh, so, on the, well, on, at first level, the, these are what you expect from Disney uh, fairy tale musicals. Um, but these Disney fairy tales come after a decade of Shrek that explicitly satirized this specific, what you, exactly what you described, the representation of 
um, fairy tale romance, heteronormativity with songs, uh, the, the musical elements. So Shrek mocked that very explicitly. So Disney has to come across, come after a decade of very explicit, sometimes heavy-handed parody, and try and do how can you do naive and sincere after you know having a having a princess singing so loud that she kills a bird or, you know, so many other examples that you get from Shrek. Um, so that's that obstacle, that first obstacle. And Frozen follows from that in a way. Well, you have the uh, in The Princess and the Frog, you do have the, the prince who is this character um, who's, uh, who's potentially, um, potentially uh, a masquerade because... In most of the film, the real prince is a frog, and the real prince Navin is actually his servant in disguise. Then in Tangled, you have also as well that Flynn slash actually Eugene, uh, that character who is not a prince and who is very much influenced by DreamWorks in uh, the humor that he uses and, and the way he evolves. And then in Frozen, you have Hans, Prince Hans, who is... Who is with the villain and the explicit, and not the villain in the fun way that you get in Shrek when you have the, the Prince Charming who is, who is very pathetic and um, and very mocked. He's not, he's dangerous, but he's, um, he's, he's mocked a lot as well. Hans is unexpectedly a villain and he's killed. I mean, not, he's not killed, sorry. That's, uh, that's, uh, uh, well, act, act, he's eradicated. He's eradicated uh, in, uh, in, in Frozen. So, the fact that we have that, the epitome of chivalry, um, fairy tale masculinity is eradicated with Frozen. This is no longer um, the, at least in animation, this is no longer the, um, the ideal. So we have all the, all the films after, coming after Frozen, who, uh, which no longer focus on romance. I think also in part, uh, well, coming from the influence of uh, Pixar as well, uh, the, the, the romance romance in, in Brave is uh, um, in the background. What, what matters is the relationship between the mother and the daughter. But Frozen has so much success and is so influential and comes then out with a sequel that I think this is the first element that um, eradicates at least this nostalgic ideal of um, Disney romance as represented within the very conventional expected uh, representation of uh, of um, of romance and gender. This is no longer the there is the, the, those sequences of love ballet in in Frozen. Actually, well, you you actually re realizing that this is the villain performing his villain song as well in in Frozen with a love is an open door. So you can no longer have that afterwards at least in animation, in live action remakes, it's another story. Um, so that's th that first thing, you know, the parody, the satire, how, how does Disney, Disney deal deals with the parody and the satire and eradicates at least that stereotypical character. And then the second influence I think is moving away from romance because it uh, borrows from action and the um, action genres and the equivalent of the romantic pair is the buddy pair, is the, the buddy relationship. So instead of having romances in films like Moana, you have uh, Maui and Moana who, who, um, who function as a, the, the pair of a, a action 
uh, action body comedy. You have the, the, the most uh, explicit example would be Zootopia with Judy and Nick. So you have that with in uh, Moana, you have Maui and Moana. And the most uh, explicit example of the, of the buddy relationship is uh, Nick and Judy in uh, Zootopia. Um, in Big Hero 6, you have a team of friends, so no longer any, any romance. You also kind of, I, I don't talk about it in, in the book, this is not my main case study, but you also have that in Bolt, uh, with uh, Bolt and Mittens, uh, the, the cat. So you have all those films who, um, which shift from the romantic pair to the buddy. And there are many parallels between those because you, in those contemporary fairy tales, those romantic pairs, very much inspired by contemporary rom-coms and screwball relationships who don't get along at the beginning, are very different, opposed in every way, but they have to work together and then they ultimately fall in love. You have that with Naveen and Tiana, you have that with Flynn and Rapunzel, and you have that with Anna and Christoph. And this is where the, the shift from Hans to Christoph is interesting. And then you have also that with all the films I quoted before. So you have buddies. Again, Judy and Nick, they don't get along. They're opposed in every way. A rabbit and the fox in, uh, in Zootopia uh, don't get along, opposed in every way, but they have to work together to help each other out. And then they form uh, an effective partnership and become friends at the end. So there's also that shift, that buddy friendship, buddy relationship, which is central in action films. You are in action films. You either have the the team, the superhero team, um, um, or the the action buddies. So, moving moving uh, away from fairy, uh, fairy tale romance, uh, eradicating the eradicating the prince, and then getting this influence from action genres and moving from romance to, to buddies. I hope this answers your question. It, it gives me a lot to think about, but the thing I want to talk about because I'm, I'm biased is, is the musical. Um, yeah. Because I'm thinking of Jennifer Flieger's work, right? Where she argues that the early Disney princess has an operatic vocal performance mm -hmm. and then moves into um uh, a Broadway style in the Disney Renaissance. Um, and then when we get to Tangled, we get uh, a pop vocal, right? Um, in part because we have Mandy Moore. Um, mm -hmm. it, it strikes me that the period you're talking about, we see a return to the Broadway musical. But I'm, I'm interested to see what you think about the relationship between Disney and the musical in this period. Um. Yeah, so yeah, indeed, in, in Frozen, obviously, with Idina Menzel uh, voicing Elsa, that is definitely the case. But um, so that's an interesting, that's an, that's an interesting question. And um, actually, when I, when I looked at the musical within my book, uh, I, I actually looked at parallels between musicals and action genres. So uh, kind of deviating from that... Uh, from that perspective so i have to admit i haven't looked into that in as um in, in detail as uh, as much um perhaps but, you can just give us some general thoughts then yeah. on on, the, on what the musical means in this moment um you know and we can leave uh professor flieger to answer the vocal <laughs> performance question um in her future work <laughs> uh 
Uh, I mean, the, the musical uh, is still integral uh, to Disney. That that's for sure. Uh, there were there were more. It's interesting to see though that in that period, the films do alternate. It seems that they are, they are still essential, uh, but you do you do also have a couple of films that are not musicals: Utopia, Bolt, Big Hero Six, um, ra- the first Ralph breaks the internet. So obviously. Um, there are generic parallels between action films and musicals. Uh, lo- numerous authors have looked into these parallels, and I tried to look at it uh, um, in the book as well. Um, I-, I think it is still central, definitely. And again, if you look at the films that have, uh, especially at the what um, with the remakes. The, the remakes that have been the most successful are the ones that have been musicals, Aladdin, The Lion King. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to see. I think uh, they are here to stay as, as, as far as Disney is concerned, because there is still that aspect of when you mentioned synergy earlier, obviously, if you have a musical, you also have the Broadway adaptation that is possible. You have the CDs, you have the music, you have the the performances in the parks, uh, at the parks. Um, so it, it invites uh, further uh, synergistic p- possibilities that you would not have uh, as easily with a film like Zootopia, even if there's that, you have one very famous pop song that the Shakira's uh, uh, Try Everything, uh, and that it is a very important song narratively um, in, this, in the film. It plays a very important role. Um, but it's you, a, a Zootopia musical, a, a Broadway adaptation would be m- more difficult than, let's say, an Encanto uh, adaptation. So I think it, it is still uh, central for these uh, for these uh, reasons. And also, uh, the, the musical has always been and still continues to be with uh, the example of Frozen and Encanto and Moana that moment of also female empowerment and the self-determination is the most um, iconic sequences tend to be those musical sequences. I mean, Let It Go might be, if there's one sequence maybe that um, encapsulates that decade of, uh, of Disney, it's, it is Let It Go because the, the song is, has been heard by so, so many times and it's it's the most to me at least it's the most interesting uh, interesting in the film in terms of aesthetic and it's so every time it's so essential in the development of the female character um so yeah i hope it answers your question yeah it, it gives us a lot to think about and and mm-hmm. um you know, you kind of gesture to in your answer, but I, I'm hoping Encanto ends up on Broadway. If, if Disney doesn't put Encanto on Broadway, they're they're fools. Um, <laughs> but uh, I also was struck, and in, in, um, because I read a lot of Noel Brown's work, right? Mm-hmm. Your your thoughts on on Disney animation and how it intersects with this this question of the children's film and the family film, um, mm-hmm. and in my own research, I've gotten an opportunity to interview a lot of folks who work at Disney, and, and they really are ambivalent about being considered children's entertainers, right? They, mm-hmm. they really push against that. Um, and, and, and and that goes back to Walt, right? We can find evidence of Walt doing the same thing. Um, I, I'm curious your thoughts on 
the usefulness and the utility of considering Disney animated films to be children's films and family films? Uh, yeah, so that's that's a, that's a, a tough question because why? Uh, I mean, I, I assume that uh, the people you interview tend tend to uh, stay away from that term because it's it tends to be even in academia it tends to be associated with very pejorative connotations. If it's a children film, well, it's it's commercial. It's not very clever. Uh, it's li it's a limited audience. In the same way, those. I mean, obviously not always, as there are very interesting and developed and thorough studies of children's films, but this tends to be those kind of generic labels like chick flicks or um, that, that tend to equate um, a specific assumed target audience and the content. And they, and they come with also pejorative uh, connotations. Chick flick is, uh, can have that ambivalence as well. Um, so, um, for the purpose of the book, because, um, because there are very interesting studies of, uh, children's films and Disney tend to have, um, tend to be often included in those studies. My aim in the book was to look at, uh, genres beyond what tends to be associated with Disney. And obviously if you look again, you take any, any academic book on children's films or family films, there will be at least one chapter on Disney. And these are very uh, useful labels. Obviously, I, I disagree that these are uh, pejorative connotations, but uh, um, I mean, to me, it's, not, it's, it's a generic label. It's not pejorative, but it's often used even in popular um, writing and, and journalism. It's, it's, it tends to be used in, in a pejorative way. Um, so... Uh, I tend to look, I, 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 with the book, I try to look at other genres, to look at um, things that, are, uh, to look at new things in those films, because obviously they tend to be categorized as children's films. So they have been studied alongside other children's films, other family films. Uh, but I thought that uh, saying, for example, if I say Frozen is a rom-com, let's say, how useful is that? What can it show that you wouldn't understand if you were sticking to children's film, for example? Um, so that was my personal approach. Uh, and so also raising the, I think maybe another reason why those, um, it is difficult to solely categorize those films as children's films. There are children's films, but there are also many other things is that uh, the audience is um, is much wider. I mean, family film maybe might be... Um, in for those Disney animated films, maybe family films might be uh, a little bit more accurate because especially with the films in the 2000s, they, are, they have so many self-reflexive elements. They draw on so many other generic influences that the audience is... Uh, all um, all sections of audiences will get something out of out of them. I think, especially fairy tales. To to fully appreciate, uh, um, obviously, Frozen can be appreciated by, by by very young children, as it has been a lot. But um, the the audience reaction was so strong because. All 
older children and young adults and parents were expecting spe something specific with that film and they were surprised because it did not um, stick to what was expected in terms of the prints and what we uh, mentioned earlier. So um, what, what label, obviously what, what label uh, is... Um, what label to choose is never innocent, it's always calculated. Uh, I remember reading one of the first Frozen's uh, description in the trailer. Um, the blurb said it's an action-packed uh, uh, um, adventure comedy, uh, which, is, which is not wrong, but it's, it's a very uh, specific way to enter the film, saying that Frozen is an action-packed uh, comedy. Uh, so if you say children's films, it will connote other things. If you say it's a romance or a musical, uh, it's, it's, it will also connote and uh, give a, another window to the, to the film. So um, it is definitely a useful uh, category, but um, um, and, and very hybrid as well. Uh, children's children films obviously can, can uh, englobe so many different things. Um, so it can be useful, but I, I but in that in my personal work, I, I try to look at genres that were not necessarily as much associated with uh, Disney. And so, as we head into the home stretch, I'm going to ask you a, a bit of an unfair question, which is that you know from 2018 to 2024, we've mm -hmm. seen the release of more. Disney animated mm -hmm. films, of course, mm -hmm. um, you know, thinking of films like uh, Encanto and Turning Red and um, Wish. Um, I'm wondering if you could offer us some kind of tentative thoughts about how, you know, if you were to write a coda, um, because mm -hmm. books take a long time to, to mm -hmm. write, finish and get through the production process. Um, is anything kind of striking you in what Disney has released more recently? Um, do you see it as a kind of a continuity of the arguments you're making here, or do you think that there are some some interesting pivots or changes that you would address in future work? Um, so I will admit I have not seen Wish yet, so I will not be able to, uh, Me to neither. Talk, about, <laughs> talk about it. Okay, but thinking about uh, Encanto, even Raya and the Last Dragon, uh, Tony Red is, is Pixar, but obviously the, the, there is dialogue uh, there. Um, it seems to me so far that it follows uh, the the two main trends. Uh, at least the second trend I had uh, I had looked at in the book, which was basically that decade, two thousand and eight, twenty eighteen. It's Disney revising its canon uh, for the fairy tale part, revising um, with parody, with um, uh, with uh, with satire, and also expanding the canon. So that's where you get the superhero influence, the action genre, um, the, the, uh, the buddy comedy, uh, cop films with uh, Zootopia. And it seems to me that it continues to expand. Uh, Raya and the Last Dragon is, uh, is very close to uh, the, the action genre, uh, uh, looking at other, other variations of, of action adventure, but pretty much in that uh, in that. Uh, mode um but you you seem to we seem to have in terms of the animation and that's where i think the the uh, it's important to 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 specify that in terms of the animation we continue to veer towards action adventure 
and further away from fairy tale romance. Frozen Two obviously is the is a is a, is the exception to that. Um, but in terms of new content, uh, original content, it seems that I, I would be very curious to see how they can um, produce another romance, fairy tale romance in animation after Frozen. Um, because of all the things we, we talked about, so again, I have yet to see Wish. This might be wrong uh, if I if I if I watch, if I watch uh, Wish, but in terms of the other films, it, it seems that veering again veering towards action adventure and go staying away from fairy tales, which is the opposite. Um, not exactly the opposite, but if you look at the live action remakes, for example, this is where. Uh, the fairy tale uh, romance are, are back in a way. You say, uh, the animation is going away from that, and then you have films like Aladdin and The Little Mermaid, who restage the romance and the weddings and the and the with the strong influence of action, obviously. But you still have that. This is where it's in, it seems that it is in the live action remakes that you get the romance and the the nonsense that you no longer get in a, in animation. So. Um, so, so that's what I would say. I, I'm surprised there haven't been more Marvel animated adaptations. To be honest, I thought I didn't. I was expecting more films like Big Hero Six. This has not happened yet, but um, that's something uh, that that surprised me. So it seems to. So maybe that could be something that they look into in the future. But uh, I was I was honestly expecting more. Uh, Marvel, explicit Marvel within the animation, but they seem to be again action, adventure, musicals, and moving away from romance. Yeah, it, it seems with the success that Sony's having with the Spider Verse films mm. that Disney will not avoid that for too long uh, or too much longer. Um, and then, of course, the live action remakes we know pretty well we have to say with an asterisk and quotation marks because they're so heavily animated <laughs> yes of course yeah, when yeah, i yeah, say yeah. live action remake of course i do not include lion king which is a, an animated remake uh but um but yeah yeah you're right i forgot about uh spider verse uh, it's interesting you say that because to me it would have been a, an opposite argument because spider verse is so unique uh, in terms of aesthetic, that maybe Disney would not want to dare do something like that because of comparisons. But but you're right. But it would be difficult. It's true that Sony Spider Verse is so unique and has been critically acclaimed. There will be a third film coming. It would be it would be interesting to see what Disney would do in terms of animated superhero films. Uh, that is again Disney. I'm not obviously there are Star Wars animation and Marvel, but um, but yeah, it would be difficult for them. But uh, but I was expecting yeah before Spider Verse, I was expecting you know more more like that. But yeah, yeah. I think but... I think films like uh, Encanto are better <laughs> are better in them endeavors at least. Uh, um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and 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 what I was saying just to just to clarify um, for those who were listening is like, you know, even in the live action remakes, quote unquote, right? Like Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin, we're still seeing an an, an intense amount of digital animation. I, I don't course. know how we've come across this term live action remake, um, but it, it it of course is um, at at best is a hybrid, right? Um, so 
my final question for you, my final question for, for all my interviewees is what are you currently working on? Are, are you continuing to work um, on contemporary Disney animation or, or has your scholarly interest been drawn elsewhere? Um, so I'm working, uh, so I have a couple of uh, work in progress chapters that are either finished and about to be published or in the process of writing that on Disney. So I have one which is based on my, who ex expands the work I've done on Big Hero 6, but looking at other characters. I have another chapter on actually comparing, um, uh, so that's for the Oxford Handbook of, uh, of Disney musicals, looking at animated sequels. So looking at, actually I, I'm taking where I left it with, uh, where I left uh, the book. So Frozen 2, Ralph Breaks the Internet and comparing them with Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast uh, from the perspective of the musical and how the musical sequence is used to uh, rework uh, the Disney canon and the Disney formula. Uh, I have a, another chapter on the Disney princess uh, coming as well for 2025. And after that, I, I might look into uh, other scholarly ventures and uh, looking at uh, studios uh, in, the, in the European context. So basically after spending um, time to think about what defines Disney and what makes Disney Disney in terms of animation and, and reception and genre, um, I, um, I want to look at that, that same period, but looking at other studios and how they try to, how independent studios have tried to uh, create uh, an identity and how they survive. So especially looking at um, Cartoon Saloon from uh, the Irish studio is, is one I'm particularly interested in. Uh, how those European studios, Artman would be another example, but how, how these European students uh, stand out with uh, creating a brand identity and a recognizable, uh, blending that with a recognizable aesthetic that uh, stays away from digital animation or at least explicitly in the design and the techniques explicitly um, stands away uh, from uh, the digital animated aesthetic that has been identified with Disney and Pixar. So, so looking at the, the other side of the uh, Atlantic, that might be the next, uh, the next big project. Wonderful. Well, I hope when you finish it, you'll, you'll come back on the podcast. I hope um, so too. Thank you so much for your time today, Eve. The book is Thank contemporary. You. My pleasure. The book is contemporary Disney animation, genre, gender, and Hollywood available now from Edinburgh University Press and other online booksellers. This is Pete Kunze, and this has been New Books in Film on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.